Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies AFI Top 100 Countdown Number 82, F.W. Murnau's 1927 classic, Sunrise. Seems kind of appropriate to be doing a movie called Sunrise on an early morning episode, doesn't it? The audience doesn't know it's early morning. I mean, they might be able to tell after the at this point. Um, I don't know if you're groggy. I mean, you're you're at 10 a.m. I'm I'm at like 7 a.m. my time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I feel great. I already hit the gym. I'm ready wow. to go. Synapses firing. Stoked to talk about sunrise. Speaking of sunrise, we're in post daylight savings or pre pre daylight savings time right now. We just switched over about a week ago. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you feel about daylight savings? Are you a fan or do you think it's a passe thing for farmers that doesn't need to be instituted anymore? Yeah, I think it's all bullshit, and the farmers can just disregard, I mean, of all the people in this world, they're the ones that can disregard, like, the clock for social reasons, right? They didn't. The clock is arbitrary to them. They're out on their farm. They can get up whenever they want. It doesn't matter what the time says it is, right? Well, yeah, it's a city, city folk that it matters for. Which is kind of appropriate, given the, the sort of dichotomy going on in this film. But yeah, it just it really does sort of speak to, like, like you said, sort of the arbitrariness of time, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of uh, yeah, it's kind of wacky how we can just sort of set the clock to wherever we want it to be based on such strange, arbitrary social conventions. I, I don't know, and and plus we complain all winter long about like oh god, it gets dark so early, which is again just arbitrary. Like why it gets dark when it gets dark? We just don't like the fact that the clock says four o'clock when it gets dark in December, right? Yeah, but I mean, the, the, there is a. I mean, it's a shorter yeah, day. A, it's a shorter yeah, day. It's a shorter day. There's a mental thing to, like, not going home until it's dark out, right? Like, that sucks. Right now, this is a joy. It is finally, it's light till 7 p.m. where it's the best. Uh, it, it brings you life in a, in a way that, uh, you know, <laughs> the opposite happens when it's it's dark at 4.15 p.m. and you're, you never see the light of day if you go to the office like us, uh, us office folk, you know. Uh Whatever. This is not, you know, we like daylight savings time. This is we like movies, Matt. I believe we saw Sunrise together for the first time in our freshman art of cinema class. Is that correct? That sounds right. This is this yeah. is really essential viewing for sure. I, I mean, I'm at uh, Columbia University right now sort of taking film studies class and teaching some film studies class and auditing film studies classes. So I'm sort of ensconced in film studies and film history at the moment. And this truly is like along with things like you know maybe battleship potemkin and obviously citizen kane of course really one of the uh, sort of required canonical films for film history yeah i remember watching it in freshman year and being like oh that's i mean it's visually appealing there's something to it i wasn't too entranced by the the story and i'm not sure i got it and i, and I suspect people will look at this as another symbolic entry uh, on this top 100 list, and we can debate whether that's the case or not. But Matt, will, since you are the historian here, will you sort of explain to everyone why this is so highly regarded a film? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. I mean, it, it's an it's an interesting situation that led to this movie coming together because it's basically F.W. Murnau, the uh, uh, legendary German expressionist filmmaker of films such as, you know, Nosferatu, for example, uh, coming over to Hollywood and basically being given carte blanche at Fox to do pretty much whatever he wanted. So you have a very similar situation here to, it reminds me a lot of like when Orson Welles came over to RKO, 
which of course was Orson Welles's first film. This was not Murnau's first film, but it was the same sort of situation where a studio brought this, you know, genius into the fold and said, money's no object. And they brought a certain sense of like inventiveness and wanting to try new things and wanting to push the envelope. And as a result, you got, you know, a film like Citizen Kane or a film like Sunrise, which really are um, historically important because they decide to sort of like do their own thing as opposed to sort of follow a path that's been set before, right? So I think that the movie invents a lot of things and does a lot of things, not only because it's a European filmmaker making his first film in the U.S., but it's also a filmmaker who clearly was not interested in just sticking to the rules. A filmmaker who was really interested in uh, breaking the mold, as it were. Yeah, so I mean, this movie is uh, obviously more known for sort of breakthrough type of like technical aspects than than the the film sort of narrative and story itself i guess the question to you is does does any sort of lack of depth or complexity or i don't know enjoyment derived from this story take away from what this sort of means for for filmmaking and what it meant in 1927 like i guess it just depends on your relationship with simplicity i I mean like narratively i think it's completely satisfying even though it is certainly a uh storytelling wise i guess a product of a bygone era but i Mm -hmm. still find myself i mean I, i find the the viewing of it to be extraordinarily pleasant it goes down extraordinarily easily it's you know relatively short and yet still, I, I, you know, emotionally pretty satisfying. And I, I think it is often unduly thought of as just an exercise in style or like photographically groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. But even though it is ext- extremely simplistic, almost to the point where it becomes really more of a fairy tale than a traditional narrative. Yeah. I, I still find it to be to be really effective. But I, I guess I would understand how modern audiences might be a little put off by and you know and maybe it's not even this the how simplistic it is maybe it's just a a a sort of like european approach because i truly feel like this is a movie very much about america that could not but could not have possibly been made by an american filmmaker i mean there really is like an aesthetic approach not just visually but sort of emotionally that speaks to the fact that you have a, a, a german filmmaker working in the u.s who clearly like wants to sort of like comment not necessarily in a negative way but just sort of in kind of like a bird's eye view way well yeah let, let's let's talk about that for a second so i mean to me that was maybe the most interesting aspect of of the story itself which is the uh you know about america thing uh which is the the city versus rural the uh you know puritanical versus sort of hedonistic uh that sort of dichotomy uh do, do you think, I mean, I guess you know more about the history t- than, than I do, but was Murnau trying to say something specific about America? You, you just, you know, sort of intimated that maybe he wasn't trying to opine too much or maybe not in a negative way. But w- was that was that his aim and did that hit audiences at the time in 1927? I mean, I you know didn't live then, and I'm certainly not a not a you know so, uh, socio political historian, so I can't really speak to that. But I presume that at the time, sort of like this industrial struggle between you know whether people should live in metropolitan areas or whether they should live 
you know, out as, as you know, like one with the countryside, uh, I'm sure was, uh, you know, first and foremost on a lot of people's heads. So, but, you know, I feel like this is a pretty traditional way of struggling with this subject, right? You very, in the city mouse, country mouse kind of struggle, you very mm-hmm. rarely get a movie that's, that's telling you like, oh, you know, you give up, give up the um, farm life and move to the city. The city where it is where it's at. It's almost always the reverse, right? It's almost always talking about the evils of the urban environment and uh, yeah. how we it's should the all temptation really be of the living. city. And yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, it's never the other way around. So it's maybe not even necessarily Murnau's own philosophy so much as it is a more kind of like traditional storytelling device. Ultimately, I don't really care what the filmmaker's um, proclivities are as long as the story is told well. So whether Murnau believes it or not, I mean, it is based on a book too. So he could also just be making a truly faithful adaptation of a book. It might not Mm -hmm. necessarily be what he believes so much as he just happens to like the story. I mean, as somebody who has always lived in cities and prefers living in cities and kind of gets nervous when I go out to the countryside or get out in nature, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) obviously... I don't necessarily jibe with that philosophy, but I still find the story to be pretty effective, which is a testament to Murnau's uh, abilities as a storyteller. Yeah, I think the story is okay. I mean, it is more of a fairy tale, parable type thing, and so it's not you know meant to be taken literally, I suppose. Um, and it, you know, it's not the part of the movie that that strikes me. I mean, it's it's more the visuals and. Uh, trying to figure out how they did what and the sort of awe-inspiring nature of the of the sets for you. Like, what are the technical aspects rewatching it that that really you know strike you and made you may make you believe that this is sort of a, a breathtaking technical technological achievement? I guess in, in terms of like cinematography and special effects, you know, not just required viewing, but maybe one of the simply best shot films of all time. It's kind of it's a movie where the camera sort of takes on agency in a way that just hadn't really been seen beforehand. We're getting to a point with silent films by this point. The movie is, what, 1927? We're getting to a point where cameras actually are getting smaller. The There's two cinematographers who worked on the film. One of them is named uh, Charles Rosher, and he had actually built his own camera, and it was it was this um, not only a, a smaller light camera, but it also utilized a, an onboard motor and a battery, so it was mobile as opposed to some of the bigger cameras, which actually had to be plugged straight into the wall, right? Mm-hmm. So, be, by nature, the fact that he had his own sort of like a retrofitted camera that could move around because it wasn't tethered, it was able to move in ways that hadn't been seen before. So there's actually moments in the film where the camera will be following a character and all of a sudden the camera will like almost get bored with the character or just wander off by itself and then it'll mm-hmm. come back together with a character later on. And I have to imagine that that probably was pretty revolutionary at the time. The idea that the camera would sort of like have a mind of its own. Like there's a part where George O'Brien's like walking through this sort of swampy marshy area and the camera just like leaves him, walks through the marsh by itself, goes through all these trees, lands on a place later in the marsh, and then George Bryan circles back around and like comes back into the frame, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of interesting. And you know, just, just the way they were able to, you know, layer things, superimpose things. Murnau is all about sort of like depth and superimposition and layering upon layering, not just for um, sort of dreamy, more elliptical scenes, but also for transitions and stuff, right? Yeah. So you really could go through and watch this and just sort of like see the seeds 
of future visual effects work starting to get planted. Mm-hmm. Um, but but again, not just for flashy sort of distracting reasons, for for like pretty deep set thematic reasons that I think are really uh, consistent stylistically throughout the film. All right, so I mean, it sounds like you are very pro this movie being on the list, uh, even where it is. I mean, do, do you feel like this should be higher? I mean, obviously, it's kind of a hard movie to judge, especially it's hard to compare this to say, you know, all the President's Men or Titanic, right? I, I mean, I, I guess there has to be a spot on the list for a movie like this, right? Correct. Uh, forgive me, but is this the first silent film we've talked about? Is this the first silent film that shows up on the list? I'm just dancing through the list really quickly right now to see. Uh, yeah, I think I think it is right. Definitely is for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, and mm-hmm. you know, a, a lot of people believe this to be just simply put the greatest silent film ever made. Full stop. Which. I think is is valid, and um, I, I also would entertain the idea of putting this higher on the list because I do think it is like a true true masterpiece. Like I said, canonical required viewing that I think is a little more accessible. You know, perhaps not more so than you know some of Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin stuff, but certainly more accessible than you know some of the Russian stuff, for example. So you, I, I think you have, I think you can sort of get it both ways here, where you get a European filmmaker who's bringing European sensibilities, but making a film at an American studio and making it in such a way that it is accessible. Not that American audiences are necessarily like less sophisticated, but there is a certain type of broad audience, mainstream, you know, uh, studio filmmaking style that I think Murnau still kind of adheres to here, which makes the film a little more digestible, especially for, you know, entry-level film students. Um, yeah, I mean, but to answer your question, yeah, I do, I do think it deserves to be on the list. I would put it higher on the list, and I do think if somebody says this is the greatest silent film ever made, I'm not going to argue with them necessarily. Although there are other silent films that will show up higher on this list. Yeah, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed this movie. I mean, it, it, going into it, I was like, oh, this is just pure homework. Um, <laughs> but you're right; it does go down smooth, and it is an enjoyable watch, and it's visually striking and appealing, and it's also very short. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so, so that helps as well. Yeah, it's it's not it's not homework. It's a pretty easy watch. It, it, it interestingly enough, it was not actually on the original AFI list. We we use the ten uh, year anniversary list. <clears throat> excuse me for this podcast, but uh, the film was mm-hmm. not on the original list, which I think is crazy. And I'm wondering if it had to do with some sort of uh, and with the fact that it was a European filmmaker. I don't know. I, I to me that seems a little bit um, suspicious. Anti-German sentiment on the <laughs> AFI jury in 19, 1990, 1997. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what it was, but yeah, it certainly deserves to be there. Uh, interestingly enough, the film did win an Oscar in 1928. But at the time, there was two quote-unquote picture awards. One was straight-up picture, which of course went to Wings, which is looked at as the very first Best Picture winner. And then there was another award, which was called Most Unique and Artistic Film. <laughs> I kind of almost wish that was still around, don't you? Right? Yeah. And I and I really think that it's it's a shame. It's actually kind of tragic that they ended up not just dissolving that particular category the next year, but we always think of Sunrise as being the... F- I'm sorry, we, th- we think of Wings as being the first, whereas Sunrise really deserves to be thought of as potentially the best... The f- very, they, We really should be sharing the very first Best Picture win because if this is the most unique and artistic picture of the year, to me that sounds like mm-hmm. it should be on the same level as Picture. 
Yeah, I agree. I also think we should bring that category back. That category <laughs> would be fantastic. Well, it's. I, I mean, I mean give, give it to you, the weirdest you, movie or the the, the 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 most artistic that can't you know win Best Picture, right? You can give. Pulp Fiction, most unique and artistic, and you can give Forrest Gump best picture. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, you might be onto something there in terms of, because we always lament the fact that, uh, oh, the, the Oscars are so out of touch with mainstream audiences, right? Like, mm-hmm. we all, we want to, you know, we want to give it to Moonlight, even though mainstream audiences aren't going to see Moonlight. So could, could there ever be a situation where we have a year where, you know, Black Panther wins best picture, but we give most unique and artistic to, you know, I don't know, Shape of Water? Sure. Or Moonlight. I mean, that could be kind of interesting. Although, at what point then does it just become the People's Choice Awards? Yeah, we can't have the People's Choice Awards. I wouldn't (laughs) want that. Well, let's take this up uh, to the Academy during our next meeting with them. We'll We'll do. What we think. Bring it up. up All right, Matt. Any 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 final thoughts on uh, Sunrise? Uh, Yeah, I I got a few little notes and pieces of trivia here. Um, Hit me up. F.W. Bernal would only go on to make uh, three more films for the rest of his career. So really, despite the fact that this was an artistic breakthrough for him, it was not a big success, but it was incredibly expensive, as you can probably tell from all the crazy, all, all of the uh, elaborate sets and everything. So as a result of being extraordinarily expensive and not that successful, basically the same thing happened with him as happened with uh, Wells, where he was given all this freedom, and then all this freedom was immediately revoked right afterwards, right? Mm-hmm. So he was kind of forced to make smaller films. He didn't have as much autonomy afterwards, and so he only ended up making three more films after that. One of his films—I'm just looking at this right now. One of his next film called Four Devils, considered one of his best movies, uh, is gone. It doesn't exist. It's gone like it's out of print. Yeah, out of print. They can't find either version. Isn't that sad? Yeah, I mean, it's got to be somewhere in a Fox warehouse, right? No, no copies exist. Yeah. I wonder Only if it surviving was print was lost by actress Mary Duncan, who had borrowed it from Fox Studios. <laughs> Can I just borrow this for the weekend? I promise I'll bring it right back. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah, that's lost bonkers. The time. Obviously, you know, plenty of, like, lots of optical effects used in this film, but also lots of practical effects and lots of um, forced perspective. Like, a lot of the sets were actually built on an angle, built sloped, and uh, things that were placed lower in the frame, closer to camera. I'm sorry, higher in the frame, closer to camera, lower in the frame, further from camera, and also oftentimes um, little people, uh, uh, vertically challenged people, if you will, utilized in uh, in backgrounds so as to force the perspective for some of like the bigger, crazier um, party scenes and, and city scenes. Um, the film is thought of as being silent, but it actually is one of the first examples of a sound-on-film track as, meaning that there actually is technically a soundtrack attached to the film print, uh, which is technically synced. So if you watch, the film actually does have not just music, but sound effects, obviously not uh, dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are actually sound effects that are synced to the picture. Also, did you did you take note of any of the uh, crazy intertitles and text effects? The way that like the intertitles actually were manipulated, you know, like they actually had visual effects applied to the titles themselves. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Do you know the <laughs> how they did that? Um, I don't know how, but I uh, but I think I know why. In my research, um, I, I discovered that Murnau actually had intended to make the entire film without titles. He was hopeful to make it like a completely visual exercise. And even though he was given lots and lots of freedom, Fox, that was something that Fox, <laughs> William Fox put his foot down on and said, no, 
man, we need <laughs> American audiences do need their handheld a little bit. I need you to put titles in this film to help guide the story. And he agreed to do that. Uh, you'll see certain words like melts or fade away. Um, they're also very flowery. Like the language of the titles is is extraordinarily poetic, and the movie actually kind of like moves away from them. It starts very title heavy, and then it gets more and more visual to the point where the last act of the film, there's virtually no titles at all. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense to get all the exposition and, and, and you know set the pace with with the titles, and then just let them go from there. I would like to see a version. I wonder if there is a version out there where where it's, it's titleless and see if it see if it works. I think it would still play, personally. I think it's such a visually strong film. I mean, granted, it's impossible for me to really be a control group for this because I already know the story, but I I kind of think it would still play. It is, like we talked about the simplicity of it all as potentially being something that makes it less interesting or less sophisticated, but I think that that's actually one of its strengths, that like a simple story is, is easier to tell visually. Janet Gaynor, who uh, plays, quote-unquote, the wife. P.S., there's basically three characters in the film, and they're just called the man, the wife, the woman, right? Mm-hmm. The, the woman, the woman from the city. Excuse me. Um, so Janet Gaynor won an Oscar for this film, and I think she's pretty extraordinary. She definitely has one of those faces that are just you know made for um, for silent film. And uh, she was a huge star at the time, and um, she not only won an Oscar for this film, but she won it for uh, the two other films that she made in 1927 as well. Um, and George O'Brien, who plays the man, uh, basically had weights in his shoes for the entirety of the production <laughs> because he wanted me, Murnau wanted to tell him to look like he was just carrying the weight of the world with him and wanted him to shuffle. And we wanted it to look like it was very difficult for this man to actually get around. So he, uh, he installed weight into the actor's shoes. Wow. That's which cool. Is, which is kind of silly, <laughs> <laughs> but Hey, if, effective, I guess. Yeah, um, it works. So yeah, That's I mean, funny. please, people, don't be put off by the fact that it's a silent film from uh, 1927. I mean, this 1927 is such an important year in the history of cinema, not just because it's when this film was made, but it was obviously the year that gave birth to the advent of sound. So it's really a turning point year, and obviously, it's the very first year we gave an Oscar, we gave out the Oscars, and yada yada. So the idea that this is sort of like the end of silent filmmaking or the change over to sound, I think it's appropriate that maybe our greatest example of silent cinema came out that particular year. And I also think this is a really good example of the fact that just because sound came along doesn't necessarily mean that silent cinema as a storytelling style needed to die or had to give over to something else. I mean, I think silent cinema is still a relatively vital and useful thing something like the artist obviously teaches us that you can still tell a story effectively that way right that movie won best picture i mean nobody really does it anymore but i think it still works and i think it would be interesting if we kept exploring that Mm -hmm. as uh you know i mean i think it's just a choice like anything else just like using black and white yeah i mean i want to echo your echo your sentiments and say don't be scared of this movie it's 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 really (laughs) it's really fun and, and it's good history lesson on on cinema see where we where we came from and uh you know the music's music's fun and the acting's good and the visuals are are incredible so yeah don't be afraid yeah especially for aspiring cinematographers i I mean i can't stress this whole required viewing thing enough i really think if you're if you care about the history of cinematography or you have an interest in you know becoming a cinematographer uh this needs to you know this needs to go right up there with you know, Days of Heaven and The Conformist as uh, something that needs to be on your shelf. All right, Matt. I think we've done it. Um, this was number 80, shit, 81? Is that what we said? 82, 82. I think. Yeah. 
Dang it, 82 <laughs> on the AFI 10-year anniversary top 100 list, Sunrise. Any final thoughts? Not at all. I will all right. see you at uh, Spartacus. Sounds good. Until next time, this has been We Like Movies, We Like AFI, Top 100. See ya.